Open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. Today we will be in chapter 5. But as we come to the Gospel of Luke, I want to remind you of why Luke wrote this. Luke was writing an orderly account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to the most excellent Theophilus. Um, Speculation is of who this person is. Is he a, a nobleman? Was he a supporter of the ministry? But this Theophilus, whose name means God lover, Um, Luke writes an orderly account that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And so chapter 1, verse 4 will be our anchor verse throughout this entire season together. Sidulate, we must be certain of the things that we've been taught. Um, There's many things that we will have doubts about, that we will struggle with, we will even question God. But by faith and by the Spirit of God, we will have certainty of Jesus Christ, who is the second person of the triune God. The eternal Son, holy, infinite, glorious, divine. Forever Jesus has had divine nature in the Godhead. But at a point in time, He took on human nature, added human nature, so that this person is now fully God and fully human. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He grew up up in obscurity in Nazareth. This is... The fullness of the deity bodily dwelling. Do you believe this about Jesus? This is who we will see on the pages of Luke's gospel. The four gospels speak little of his childhood and his 20s. There's just a few brief incidents. And so let's not speculate where Scripture is silent. But what we do know is that according to Luke 3.23, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son of as was supposed, of Joseph. So now, about 30 years of age, Jesus goes in public ministry. And wherever Jesus goes, he attracts great crowds. He came in the power of the Spirit. Chapter 4, we read this last week. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went throughout the surrounding country. He taught with authority. In verse 31 of chapter 4, he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. He healed the sick and delivered the demon-possessed. In verse 37 of Luke 4, and reports about him went throughout every place in the surrounding region. Mark says that at, at once his fame spread throughout everywhere, throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. So many were fascinated by Jesus. But even last week, we saw many who are furious with Jesus. His his hometown, the townies of Nazareth, were furious with him. And still others would have faith to follow. So as we come to Luke chapter 5 today, let's continue to ask our questions. How do we see fury at Jesus even today? Are you angry at him for who he says he is? Are we just... Or are we just fascinated? It's just a historical figure, and we'll just kind of put him in the pages of some history books? Or do we have faith to follow? Last week, when we were in Nazareth with him, we saw the danger of being too familiar with Jesus. They grew up with him. They saw him in the marketplace. Their kids grew up with him. They were so familiar with Jesus. How could this son of Joseph, this carpenter's son, now claim that Isaiah 61 is fulfilled at his his coming. But I would ask you, Roanoke, 
How have we become too familiar with Jesus? Small to medium-sized city, not yet post-Christian, according to Barna, we're number 82 on the list. But if you, the most Bible-minded cities in the United States, we're usually like two, three, or we're usually three or four these past couple years. But number 82 for being post-Christian, we are still very churched. But my concern is that we're getting too familiar with Jesus. Just got a little, just get a little shot of Jesus, just get a little shot of church, and all of a sudden, um, you're vaccinated, you're immune to him. And so let's not become vaccinated to the gospel just because we've had just a, a little injection here or there. How are we tempted to become so familiar with Jesus and so not worship him? I mean, what a blessing to hear all these kids that just now went down this, the parking lot and down the street. It's a blessing that they're growing up in Christian families and in Christian community in this church, being taught the Bible. But apart from saving faith, we are playing social club and just doing religion. Um, let's not be familiar. Let's worship him and know him today. Let's come to Luke chapter 5. Let's read the first 11 verses. This is God's word. On one occasion, while the crowd was still pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to be put out a little from land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let out your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. This is God's word. Um, change us by it, Lord. So today we're going to look at this multi-purpose boat. We're going to look at this miraculous catch. And then we're going to look at the real miraculous catch that's coming. Look with me the verse, first verses, um, verses 1, 2, and 3. On, another, on this one occasion, the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God. In Jesus' public ministry, everyone was pressing in on him. I mean, let the scriptures come alive. I mean, we don't want to create false images, but picture yourself there. How do you respond when people are always pressing in on you? Parenthood, just always someone there tagging, needing something. Tomorrow in the workplace, the project, the deadline's on the way and everyone's hustling and bustling and just always pressing you, needing something. How does this sound to you to always be pressed upon? This is an introvert's nightmare. 
Some of you extroverts think that this sounds fantastic to always be in such a social setting. It will wear you out. One of my best friends from seminary is the total opposite of me and full-on extrovert, but, but pastoral ministry has brought him closer to my introversion. It's exhausting. Everyone always needing you. But what is Jesus' response to people pressing in on him? Even here and across the other witness of the Gospels, there's patience, compassion, loving service, and self-sacrifice. Patience, compassion, loving service, and self-sacrifice is what Jesus gave the crowds. But he, needs, he, he did need some distance to teach. And so he got in one of the boats and said, put out from land, that way I can at least get a little bit of spatial distance to teach without being bombarded. It was after a morning after a night's fishing. The fishermen were washing their nets to finish up the day's work. It was the end of their work day. They had been working the hoot owl shift, third shift. Have you ever worked third shift before? Third shift. You're finishing work, and everyone else is like coming up to coffee and breakfast, and you're exhausted, wondering how you're going to get home without wrecking the car. That's what my wife did for many, working third shift as a nurse. There was a year where I taught middle school, and she worked third shift, and we would pass off Nathan in between real quick. Everyone's waking up to their day. You're just trying to finish yours. And here by the lake of Gennesaret, which is also the Sea of Galilee, a crowd is pressing around the miracle worker, the teacher Jesus. They're just trying to close up shop. And Luke tells us that the boat that Jesus gets into belonged to Simon, Simon Peter. But please know this from the witness of the Gospels, this is not the first time they've met. They know each other. Please, let's not make this some robotic clone thing where Jesus is now going to walk down the Sea of Galilee and people he's never even seen before are going to... Simon knew Jesus. Put a harmony of the Gospels together, the four Gospels. Do you remember in John 1, Andrew went and got Peter. Brother, we have found the Messiah. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Even in Luke's gospel, in the passage we've um, leapfrogged over, in Luke chapter 4, and Jesus arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her immediately, and she rose and began to serve them. Jesus loves mothers-in-law, men. Peter implored the Lord for his mother-in-law. So what do we learn here just in these first three verses before we get going? Gospel ministry can and should happen anywhere at any time. We're not on the Sabbath here. We're at the end of a work day for these fishermen. So we love, we're, we cherish, we don't want to neglect this, the Lord's Day whether we're here in that sanctuary or gym, wherever we are, we gather together. It's the people, not the place. But it's a 
dedicated time in these dedicated spaces to worship God corporately. But gospel ministry can happen anywhere, anytime. Do you see where Jesus taught? In the synagogues? By the sea? In homes? By a well? On the mountain? Along roads? From a cross? Always teaching. And so we hear God's word here on Sunday morning as we read it corporately. But the glorious appeal of the gospel should be, it should be shared at any point in the week. What do we also see in these first three verses? That gospel ministry seizes opportunities even to personal inconvenience or even hardship. Everyone pressing in. It's not a convenient time. Can we just postpone? But the opportunity is seized by our Lord. But this requires loving service and self-sacrifice. But this is the example of Christ and the way of His cross. There were several who gathered last night in a book club to talk about how the gospel comes to the house key. These are opportunities seized in the home through the ministry of hospitality to share the good news of Jesus. To seize an opportunity. It could have just been so easy just to get out of town and figure out life in Indiana, but let's press into the mayor's office and tell him, we're praying. We're praying for you before you leave. And that that would stir his heart, warm his heart, and see what the Lord would do. So this is actually principles the Apostle Paul commands Timothy. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and learning. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. In season, out of season. In the synagogue or by the sea. Whether you feel ready or not, be ready and preach. It's not always going to be behind a pulpit. It could be over a cup of coffee to share the good news of what the Lord has done for you and then to ask heart questions to love and care for someone where they are. Some of you saw on our online platform this week, probably the, the most number of hearts we've seen ever on a post, if we're counting, about how Jonah Keith shared the good news with, shared, was trying to have a spiritual conversation with his little buddy, neighbor friend. And Jonah Keith experienced his first wave of persecution because the kid told him, I don't want to hear about your Jesus anymore. Don't say it anymore. We're going to stop playing together. But do we love people enough to share with them the good news of Jesus? It can happen anywhere, anytime. And it will be with self-sacrifice. Look with me to verse 4. Luke doesn't record to us what Jesus actually taught. Instead, he tells us what happened afterwards. He picks up the action where Jesus had finished speaking. He now commands Simon Peter to put out his nets for a catch. Put out into the deep. Let your nets down for a catch. We just watched them. Shift's over. Maybe tonight. Simon Peter knew the Sea of Galilee. You know, where, when, how to catch fish. Last night was a blank. There was nothing in the nets coming out of last night's work. And we just watched these. I'm fine. I'm grateful. Teach from the boat. I'm so grateful you healed my mother-in-law. This power. I don't I'm trying to figure out who you are. 
it's time to call it a day. And scholars believe that these are probably trammel nets, just in my quick study. These are nets you would throw out by two to four fishermen, and there would be lines of, and the fish would get caught. I mean, this is a lot of work to, to clean up and pull in. But there are these big nets that if you throw it out in the daytime, these fish are going to see it. That's why you fished at night. Simon's family was fishermen. Jesus is a carpenter teacher. And yet, Jesus commands him to put the nets out again. The clean nets. So how do you, how do you first of all, just how do you respond when people outside your field or your expertise give you suggestion on how to do your job? Some of us, so many of you work at Crillion or Lewis Gale and you're nurses and doctors and PAs and well, therapists. Don't you just love it when people come in and they've searched WebMD and they have know all the answers to tell you how to, they've already self-diagnosed it. They just want to make sure you get it right. Or skilled tradesmen, you know how to fix something. But some Joe who just watched YouTube and read some eHow articles knows exactly how to do it. Just wants your endorsement. Teenagers who come to parents and they've got it all figured out. That's getting a little too close to home. Probably <laughs> swerve out of that one. <laughs> How does Simon Peter answer Jesus? Respectfully, master. He addresses Jesus as master. He resp- answers him honestly. He doesn't argue with Jesus, but he does express <laughs> Honestly, we've already toiled all night and caught nothing. And then obediently, he says he will let down the nets. Why? Did you catch that? Because of Jesus' word. What continues to have power to proclaim the kingdom of God, to heal the sick, the demon-possessed, to command curious instructions such as throwing nets out at daybreak? It's Jesus' word. Peter acknowledges that he will obey because of Jesus' word. In our home, we call this first obedience. You can eventually get to obedience, but if it's not first obedience, there's a heart issue that we're going to talk about. So first obedience doesn't balk or argue. First obedience does what is asked when asked. And it really gets not just to doing the right thing, it's why are you going to do the right thing? What motivates your obedience? We can all do the same thing, but for different reasons. And it's the heart that the Lord is after. Simple expression. Do you obey the speed limit? out here, 25 miles per hour, you get out to a bigger road, 35 miles an hour, interstate, 65, some places 70. Do you obey it? No, I'm a law to myself. I know better. So I will not obey those posted speed limits. That's one motivation. Or yes, I don't want another speeding ticket. Fear of consequence becomes a motivation for obedience. I won't say anything there. I have, have a child who's learning that lesson. Um, said too much. 
Yes, I want my parents to let me get my driver's license. Hmm, said too much there too. I've got, I've got one fortified driver and three learner's permits in my house right now. All my traffic illustrations today. Or, yes, I trust elected officials because they, I trust they have the public's best interest. See, it's different motivation for the obedience. But will you obey? And then why? What motivates obedience? We can do the right thing, but for selfish motives. Self-preservation. I have a fear of the consequence. Self-interest. I will obey, but actually it's a desire to, to please or to be accepted or to get something in return. Still self-motivated. Or do we obey because we have faith in the commander? The trust of the authority over us, love for the authority over us. So if we do not obey Jesus, what are we really saying with our heart? We do not trust your authority. We actually don't love you. We actually know better. We don't think you perhaps have our best interests at heart. So the practical lesson for all Christians is that we should be willing to obey without hesitation all of Christ's commands, says one old preacher. So if we do not obey Jesus' word, we say that we know better. But if we do obey Jesus' word, there's still another question we have to ask is why? Do we love him? Do we trust him? Peter is going to obey, not because of any fear or selfish desire here. We're already starting to see love and trust well up in Peter's heart here on the pages of Scripture. Verse 6, and when they had done this, let's not miss that point. Obedience is not lip service. He actually did it. They set out from shore further, went into the deep and through the net, out into the sea at daybreak. They enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so they were, both began to sink. Now, we could have fun here. There's a curious question here. Was the miracle of Jesus' knowledge or is of his will? Did Jesus know there was a school of fish right there? Or did Jesus' word cause all the fish to go there? And that's all. Knowledge or will, that's, curi- that's just curious speculation. But the truth of the scripture is, Jesus is Lord of creation. He's Lord of all. And not only here, but do you remember the other times in the scriptures? Water turned into wine. Chemistry there. Calm the raging sea at his word. He walks on water. He multiplies bread and fish to feed thousands. This isn't a sleight of hand. Are you, do you have explanations for this? Because all I'm left with is that Jesus is Lord of creation, the heir of all things who created the world and upholds the universe by the word of his power. Hebrews 1. We said this together. Do we believe it? By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and are for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is Jesus, Lord of creation. Do you believe this miracle? 
You may like moral teaching Jesus, but do you like miracle-working Jesus and believe in his power? Luke, the historian, gives us more details of these frantic moments. The nets were breaking because of the large catch. They signal for other help from James and John. The two boats begin to sink. And what is Simon Peter's reaction? Some of us be like, man, this is going to be a good payday. You've seen like deadliest catch? You know, they, they throw those big fish up there and they get weighed up and you look at the meat and all that. This was going to be a good payday. And what was Peter's reaction? He fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, I am a sinful man, O Lord. He had witnessed the glory of God at the word of Jesus. And not only him, but his compatriots, James and John and others. Peter doesn't have a full Christology right now. He doesn't fully know that this is actually God in the flesh. He doesn't realize this yet. I mean, his brother is saying we found the Christ, but what is the Christ figure and the Messiah figure, and how do we understand the natures of the Christ figure? But he does say Lord. Because all of a sudden at this moment, there's been divine glory that's been shown and he realizes his human sinfulness. We would call this a theophany or an appearance of divine glory. Theophany, an appearance of God. If you have your Bibles, I mean, you keep one finger there and go to Isaiah chapter 6. This will be one time I would actually ask you to turn to a different text. Even as we're looking at Luke 5, Isaiah 6. Isaiah the prophet now has a vision of the Lord's throne room. He has a, a vision that kind of takes him from this world and sees the throne room of God. And heavenly beings calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the appearance of God's glory, what does Isaiah the prophet do? Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Do you see the similarities? At the appearance of divine glory, there's a crumpling of realization that we are sinful before a holy God. Depart from me, Jesus. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. At the revelation of God's glory, we realize our sinfulness. Do we realize our sinfulness at the revelation of the glory of Christ Jesus? We, we looked at Psalm 19 this summer. You, we should just see this world, the beauty and majesty of it that declares the glory of God. An everyday theophany of here of God's glory and natural revelation. And we're unmoved. We have Bible and access to the scriptures unparalleled. We have translation upon translation, this study by this study. We have the word of God. And are we moved? to the conviction of our sinfulness before a holy God. Why is there such a brazenness of godliness in our day? 
God's word is dismissed, God's spirit is grieved, and God's glory is ignored. And if you want to look one chapter prior to Isaiah 6 and Isaiah chapter 5, this is what the prophet writes, the word of the Lord. Verse 20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to any church that does not proclaim the glory of God, but puts our personal potential and self-fulfillment as the central message. So what happens? We're now, the prophet Isaiah is crumpled there. Woe is me. Peter on a boat in the Sea of Galilee is like, depart from me, Jesus. And what does the Lord God give? In both instances, reassurance and commission. Isaiah 6, chapter, or verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from the tongs of the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. And he said, Go and say to the people. And thus the call of Isaiah continues. At the revelation of divine glory, get the sequence here, at the revelation of divine glory, we realize our sinfulness. But in the realization of our sinfulness, God's grace comes to atone for our sins and reassure us. And then to give us commission for the Lord's call and Lord's work in this world. And this happens to Simon Peter as well. He is now standing, though he does not understand, he's standing before God incarnate who in a few short years, few short years, after they've grown together and ministered together, would be betrayed by one of his fellow disciples, who would be convicted by the Roman authorities and be led out of Jerusalem and crucified on a hill. And this isn't against Jesus' will. It was him laying down his life as an atonement for our sin, the perfect life, dying in the place of sinners. This is all why Jesus came in this plan of eternity past, to be an atonement for our sin. And in now forgiving us, sends us to be witnesses to this good news, even to the ends of the earth. Look at verse 10, back in Luke chapter 5. Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. What does Jesus not do? Here is a man at his feet confessing sin, saying, depart from me, Lord. What does Jesus not do? Jesus does not say, oh, here, here. You, no, 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 let's get up here. It'd be wrong to worship anything other than God. When the beloved disciple John falls at the feet of an angel in his heavenly vision, the angel says, oh, get up, whoa. Well, we're just fellow workers here. Don't worship me. Worship God. But does Jesus beg Peter to get up? He's not explicitly revealing himself to be God in the flesh, but implicitly here we're already seeing that this is the revelation of God who receives the humble confession and worship of Simon Peter. But what does Jesus do? 
He comforts the humble sinner. Do not be afraid. He's commanded him to let out the nets. He's now commanding him again, do not fear. From now on, you will be catching men. So there was a miraculous catch that day. Fish upon fish upon fish sinking two boats. But now comes a greater catch, the greater miracle in catching people. And the verb here, to catch, literally means to capture alive or to spare life. See, we're not catching fish to sell at market. We're catching people to set them free. And this was the ministry of Jesus. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim liberty to the captives. And this Spirit I'm going to place upon you. You'll be my witnesses to proclaim this freedom. This is our vocation. We can all have different LinkedIn's. We can all have di- We all have the same vocation in the kingdom of God. Fishers of people. Oh, how Peter is going to realize this in the coming years. But now, today, at least there's faith. Verse 11, when he had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Everything's now changed. Andrews, my brothers, declared him to be the Messiah. He's healed my mother-in-law. And now after this, this, it's, everything's changed. So following Jesus had vocational, economic, and social ramifications for Peter. Everything that had value to him is now reoriented in its place and purpose in life. The way he related to Jesus is now going to be, he's going to be a follower, a disciple of Jesus. The community now is going to be fellow disciples that will be born into a church. And the redemptive purposes have now changed. He's still a skilled fisherman. He'll still throw the net on the Sea of Galilee. But how his life is oriented now is knowing and following Jesus. And so when we leave everything to follow Jesus, everything changes. Now, Please, for this, some of you may say, well, what does this mean? How do I supposed to go sell everything and leave my job and, and just go aimless vocational ministry? Some of you, and I'm praying for some of you youth, some of you are going to feel the call of God to a place you didn't know you were going to go. You may be in a French class and 40 years later realize you've had four decades of ministry in another country. Some of you may be called to go. Some of you may be called to prepare for pastoral ministry. But just as they said, it's a team. We get to be the face of ministry here in France. But it's, a, it's the gospel partnership in the ministry of the church. So the church doesn't need everyone to be a professional minister. The church needs to be knowers and followers of Jesus who partner together for his mission in this world. It doesn't mean that we all leave our vocations, but it does mean that we all reorient life around Jesus. Whatever we're doing, however we do it, whenever we do it, our time, our money, our resources, our energy, how we work, how we neighbor, everything has to be oriented to and for the glory of God. Our lives are not our own anymore. We're to obey the word of Christ. How we work, how we neighbor. Had a conversation this this week with someone. How we date. 
how we live lives in marriage, how we parent, how we live and serve in the church, how we use our time, all of it, to and for the purposes of God in knowing and following Jesus. Have we left everything to follow him? When we see the glory of God, we know and follow Jesus. When we know and follow Jesus, we obey his word so others are caught. When we know the glory of God, when we see it, when the scriptures come alive by the ministry of the Spirit to our hearts, when we see and behold the glory of God, I don't see it. Well, you're more blessed because you don't see, but yet still believe, Jesus says. But when we behold this glory, this spiritual kingdom that is unshakable, this mighty fortress, unshakable, we will know and follow Jesus. And in knowing and following him, we will obey his word so others are caught. My question is, the Lord has you in waters now, along different shores, and how are you fishing? Apostle Paul told Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. I think we keep forgetting that. We keep forgetting that it's still about person on person sharing the good news. Someone shared good news to you and you believed. You heard the good news of the scripture opened up and you believed. It's still through the word of Christ that faith comes. Through hearing, who's going to go? How are they going to hear unless someone shares, someone preaches? Peter would know Jesus these next years. He would deny him three times at his arrest. He would abandon him at his crucifixion. Three days later, Peter would see the tomb empty. Jesus would even appear to them in resurrection glory. He still just didn't understand what to do. Turn in your Bibles to John 21. Let's end here. Verse 3. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. Go to what you know. They said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and got into a boat. And that night they caught nothing. Verse 4. Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Children, do you not have any fish? And they answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. They realized it was Jesus. You know what what Peter did? He jumped out of the boat and swam to shore to get to him. He loved him. And Jesus said, do you love me? Lord, you know I do. Well, feed my sheep. And three times, Jesus commanded him to feed my sheep. This multi-purpose vocation here of just catching people into God's kingdom and then also feeding them. This fishing, this shepherding. This is the vocation of the kingdom. Loved him. And then they had breakfast together that day. Be witnesses to Jesus. Catch people for Jesus. And then feed others with his word. Let's pray.